God meets you even when you've given up. Not because you've given up, but even when you've given up. Because that's how much God loves you. I've been loving this little series so far. We're on John chapter 5. We're going to go through the whole of John's gospel together uh, in a few different chunks between now and and Easter uh, next year. In summary, the thing that we have been looking at over the past few years is that really John's gospel is about one thing, and that is it's about love. You know, John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know, he continued to comment about that throughout his account of Jesus' life. You know, the very way that he writes is a way that is uh, it's just full of uh, description and uh, relationships. It's all about Jesus' interactions with people, how he demonstrates who he is and how he loves. You know, Jesus pours out compassion upon people. You know, he takes kind of divine action based out of that compassion. And he brings life. A couple of weeks ago, we were in chapter 3, and of course, there's that amazing summary, isn't there? You know, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever might believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. God so loved that he gave so that we might have life. You know, that's the summary right there. We're loved. God did something so that we might have and know life. And you know, right at the start, John kind of begins by wrestling with this question of who is Jesus? It's kind of like Alpha week one. You know, who is Jesus? And, and John says to us right at the beginning uh, in chapter one that this fully human Jesus from Nazareth is basically the, the messianic king Uh, He's the teacher of Israel. He's the son of God. He's going to die for the sins of the world. You know, there's this massive claim that John makes. And and actually, it's kind of, I was talking to some people at the back just at the beginning of the service. And actually, the amazing thing about John is that it's just stuffed full of so much like theology. There's so much like depth in there about the character of God. But it's wrapped up in this incredible narrative, these amazing stories of love and relationship. I kind of feel like John's a bit like the C.S. Lewis of the Bible, you know, crafting these amazing narratives about Jesus' life and packing them full of the deepest theology, the deepest insight into the heart of our uh, God. And this is a a really kind of big claim that John makes about who Jesus is. And then he spends the first half of his book supporting that claim by showing us a whole series of encounters that Jesus has with people. And as we discussed last week, these encounters all have the same pattern. Basically, Jesus meets someone, uh, he performs some kind of sign, or he makes some kind of claim about himself, which generally leads to some kind of confusion or controversy. And then the people in the story have a decision to make about who Jesus is. And over the last few weeks, just to catch you up, if you're here for the first time, we've looked at some amazing stories about how Jesus turned water into wine, about how Jesus met with a guy called Nicodemus, who was one of the senior religious leaders of the time, and explained in great detail uh, the details of salvation to him. Uh, In fact, it was to Nicodemus that he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And, And then after seeing Nicodemus, he ends up spending some time with this Samaritan woman who was 
a mess and full of trouble. But he took time to reveal himself to her also. These amazing encounters that Jesus has. And today uh, we are going to be looking uh, at a story where Jesus heals a paralyzed man. Uh, and he does it on a Sabbath, uh, which basically begins a massive controversy <laughs> with the Jewish leaders. Completely overlooking the fact that he's actually healed someone, but they're just upset about when he did it. And uh, controversy about Jesus working on a day of rest. And he tussles, he argues uh, with the Jewish leaders. And, and he basically says, well, look, my father's working and, and I'm just going to do what I see my father doing. And so basically the religious leaders completely catch what Jesus was saying and the fact that actually God was Jesus' father. And, and they get super upset about this uh, and they start to plan to kill him. That's the story. So uh, let's jump into it and read John 5, beginning from verse 1. And we're only going to go up to 21. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralysed. And one who had been there, an invalid, for 38 years, when Jesus saw him lying there and he learned that he'd been in that condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. Uh, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day in which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, well, who is this fellow that told you to pick up your mat and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and he said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on a Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. For this reason then, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I'll tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and he shows him all that he does. Yet, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Now, why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity to gather together before you. Jesus, we thank you for your life and for these windows, these gospels, these pictures of your life here on earth. And 
Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would move amongst us now. We invite you, come and shape us, mould us as we spend time in your word. We want to be like you, Jesus. Amen. 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 So healing shrines, they were pretty commonplace. Kind of sounds a bit weird to us now, doesn't it? That you might have a pool and there might be just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in desperate need of healing gathered around this place, believing that something might happen in that special place. Yeah, I mean, I guess it does happen uh, in some parts of our world, but it it feels, I guess, uncommon to us, certainly here in London. But uh, it was a pretty common uh, thing back in the ancient world, you know, especially for people that worship some of the, the kind of the plethora of gods that we now at this point in history, find in Jerusalem. Remember last week we talked a little bit about kind of what happened to the, I guess, the popular religion of Jerusalem after the people of God who'd been in Israel were carried off into exile. Uh, And actually by the time they got back, uh, what they found was there was just really a whole mishmash of religions uh, and races and gods. Uh, And actually this was part of the conflict with the Samaritans that we talked about last week. You know, but it was pretty commonplace for people to have gods of healing. You know, certainly the Greek gods, there was the son of uh, Apollo, Asclepius. You know, he, he was the god of healing. You know, many people would gather around shrines to him, believing, wishing and hoping that they might uh, be healed. You know, there were lots of popular deities renowned for this stuff. And often the kind of the participants in these uh, would come and they would have to ritually wash themselves uh, to be to be healed. Uh, And attached to this certain pool, uh, we know there was a particular legend about an angel who would come down from time to time and stir the water. Uh, And the first person who got in after the angel uh, had stirred the water would get healed. And this is where we find this encounter happening. You know, amongst the hundreds and hundreds of physically broken people we, we find one man who'd been there sick for 38 years. You know, this man had been, had been ill for longer than, than many people actually lived in those days. For 38 years, he had been ill. You know, and we, I mean, we know that confinement uh, to bed for that long would just sap you of all your strength. You would be so weak, your muscles, your limbs, uh, you know, you wouldn't be able to, to stand or walk for any length of time. You know, we don't specifically know the details of his illness, but we know that this man was broken. His life, I guess, kind of disintegrating over decades. And this is the man that Jesus meets. I, I've titled this talk for today, which you might want to write down, Healing for the hopeless. Uh, and when I, when I wrote it in my notes, I wrote hope hyphen less. You know, I guess it means the same thing without the hyphen. But you know, so often we say the word hopeless today and it sounds like such a negative sort of slur on someone, doesn't it? Yeah, someone I know often talks about people and says, oh, they're just hopeless. You know, and it sounds, it sounds like such an awful thing to say about someone. You know, but what we're talking about today is the fact that there is healing for people who don't have hope. You know, even people who don't have hope, there is healing. 
healing for the hopeless. And there are so many people, aren't there, in our world who don't have hope. You know, I guess we could apply that to so many situations as we look around in our media feeds and see what's going on in the world. You know, so many kind of groups of people, both home and away, you know, we could kind of broad brushstroke say, oh, you know, that nation, that political party, you know, that group over there, that family, they're living without hope. So many living without hope. And I guess this is the picture that we are given here in verse 3. It says, a great number were there. You know, this man was just one of a great number of people gathered around hope disintegrating over the decades. But you know, the amazing thing is, is that Jesus singles this guy out. Jesus singles this guy out. He unusually singles this man out. This man, one of many, Jesus speaks to him. Jesus takes the time to talk to him, to ask him a question. You know, and just right there, that is an amazing thing. This one man without hope, who is one of many, Jesus unusually singles him out, treats him as an individual, treats him with respect. I don't know if you've ever felt overlooked about anything in your life. You know, maybe you think, oh gosh, they got the praise, (laughs) not me. They got the promotion, what about me? You know, they got the girl or the boy, what about me? They were able to have a child, what about me? So many reasons why we might feel overlooked. You know, it's something that we share. All of us have at times felt overlooked. But you know, today I want to encourage you and say there's always hope. There is always, always hope. You know, Jesus didn't just see in broad brushstrokes. He didn't just see a crowd, but he saw a man. Yeah, and, and I think that Jesus was moved by compassion for this man. Now, we, we don't see a lot of the conversation, a lot of the interaction. You know, but I feel like when, what you do see, it feels like Jesus is moved by compassion for this man. You know, verse 6, it says, When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. You know, when Jesus saw him, when he learned about him, it says that Jesus asked of him. You know, Jesus didn't see a crowd. He saw one man and his heart was moved with compassion. You know, no matter how you feel, no matter whether you ever feel overlooked, know that you are always, always loved. You know, here we are again, right back at this central theme in the Gospel of John. Jesus loves you. No matter what's going on in your life, Jesus loves you. You know, no circumstance that you find yourself in is going to change that. I'm giving that to you today as a fact. Jesus loves you. You are always loved. Uh, And moved by compassion, we see Jesus then ask a question, a kind of a strange question. And I think he gets kind of a hopeless answer. Do you want to get well? 
It's a weird question, isn't it? This guy's been there for 38 years, desperately broken. Do you want to get well? And the guy said, I have no one to help me. He didn't say yes. I mean, he didn't say no. He just says, well, it's just kind of a hopeless answer, isn't it? I've got no one to help. He doesn't even interact with Jesus' question. I've got no one to help me. But Jesus didn't stop there. And I love the pattern that begins to emerge here because from Jesus' compassion, we see Jesus' command. Uh, and he commands the guy, says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. There's something incredibly decisive that just suddenly happens here into the middle of this hopeless situation. You know, Jesus is not the kind of guy that just kind of, he doesn't just say, they're there. He doesn't just put his arm around. He doesn't just pat him on the back, kind of rub his back. You know, I've been really challenged when I've read this passage this week and I've just thought, gosh, what's my response, you know, when people come and bring hopelessness? When I see hopelessness, what's my response? How often do I just, just kind of give sympathy rather than a decisive, divine action? You know, there's something about the compassion of Christ that led to a command of Christ. You know, love leading to action. You know, and with that action was a kind of a request for obedience. You know, I, I flicked through some of the other stories of healing, you know, not just in the New Testament with Jesus, but actually throughout in the Old Testament. And in fact, we were looking at one this morning at our 9 a.m. service. And so often in these stories of healing, what happens is a command is given to the person who wants to be healed. Get up. Go. A command is given. There's something decisive that is commanded that requires an action of the person. You know, God's compassion leads to God's command. It's forceful. Requires obedience. I was... <laughs> I was reminded as I thought through this, some of you will remember who've been tracking with us for a while, about a year ago we had a guy called Scott McNamara who came, amazing evangelist, you know, incredibly inspirational. You know, one of the things that's just stuck in my mind, because I don't know, just, you know, it's when he talked about BO. Does anyone remember that? Yeah? It's just kind of one of those metaphors, just that you think BO, oh, I don't want to remember that. I've remembered it, you know? And he talked about BO. He said, we've got to have BO. We've got to have boldness and obedience, boldness and obedience, that as we, as we are moved by compassion and love, it can't just stop there, but we've then got to step out in boldness and obedience. You know, how are we being bold and obedient? How are we speaking out truth into people's lives? Yeah, I saw another, another amazing example of this. I was at a, a church planning conference a couple of weeks ago, and there was an amazing session that was run on, uh, uh, like a workshop on sort of prayer, like a seminar on prayer within a planting context. There was an amazing guy on the panel uh, called Yemi, Pastor uh, Yemi uh, Adenji, and he's one of the directors in the Evangelical Alliance, and he's, he's actually responsible for, uh, what, is what, they call, what do they call it? They call it the One People Commission, and it's all about unity. It's all about pulling people together from across the church. And he was, uh, he's been ordained as, a, as an Anglican and as a Pentecostal pastor. And he is, he is an amazingly powerful man in prayer. And, uh, and we, had this, we had this seminar about prayer. And people kept on asking questions, which were, I guess they were kind of prayer requests in their questions. And Yemi just kept on stopping the seminar and saying, well, let's pray. 
And then he would lead us in these incredibly dynamic prayers. And I was just sitting there thinking, this is what we need to be doing. Don't just have a, a seminar on prayer and talk about why we should pray. Let's pray. And he was, exactly, you know, he was bold and he was obedient to the way that God was leading him. And I came away so challenged by that. You know, it didn't feel like a seminar, but a workshop. It really did. You know, and I think what we see here in the decisive, divine action of Jesus is an example to us how we need to be bold and obedient. But I think what's amazing here in this story is that the healing that takes place here is not a, it's not kind of a response to a request for healing. You know, this is something that Jesus just comes in and does. And I just find that remarkable. You know, so often we make healing about us, don't we? About how much we want it. About how much faith we can muster. About how many times we prayed. And I think here we just see something remarkable that this healing wasn't a response to a request. It, it wasn't uh, kind of an expression of the faith of the person involved. It kind of seems like Jesus even supplied the will to be cured for this man. You know, you may have been waiting for 38 years. Some of you need to know that Jesus sees you. Jesus is interested in you. He wants to speak into your life. You may not feel like it. You may not even have the desire for it anymore. You may feel like you've given up. But there is healing for the hopeless. Jesus wants to meet you even when you've given up. Jesus wants to speak things into being in your life. I want to tell you this morning that you cannot extinguish hope because you are always loved and there is always, always hope. It's something I've been finding really challenging at the moment. You know, we're going through something that's really difficult in our family. You know, and, and thinking about how do we pray for healing in an impossible situation. And it's really tough. It's really, really hard. And as I've been reading this passage this week, I've been challenged afresh that we need to be a people that pray, that, that we don't just accept what is happening. You know, even if we've been waiting for 38 years and it feels like nothing's ever going to happen, there is always hope because Jesus always loves us. We don't understand the way that God works. And often it doesn't work out the way that we think it should. But, you know, I'm always encouraged when I remind myself that, gosh, if, I, if God always did what I thought he should, then I think this world would be a bit of a mess, you know? Is anyone glad that God is in charge and not me? I mean, I am. I know Charlotte is. I think, you know, gosh, but it's hard, isn't it? It's hard. It's something that I'm finding hard, but I'm encouraged because I read God's word uh, and I'm reminded that no matter what's going on, and, and, even, and even when I feel like I've given up, I know that I'm always loved and I know that there is always hope. You know, compassion led to the command, which then led to the cure. 
We can often put so much different meaning into these passages, can't we? But, you know, I think the main thing that's going on here is a guy gets healed. A guy gets healed. You know, how amazing is that? Is this amazing? Yeah? I mean, so we read this stuff, isn't it? And we read it so much and we, we kind of, we lose that sense of awe. But this is a story about a man who had been broken for 38 years who got healed. I mean, that is amazing. This is what our God does. Jesus is a healer. He is an enabler. He restores us. He brings life. That's what he does. That's who our God is. You know, let's never forget that. Let's, let, let's never lose the wonder of that. Our God heals. Compassion leads to the command, which leads to the cure. You know, Paul said, I'm able to do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You know, we need to remind ourselves of that. You know, our God is a God of the impossible. He makes impossible things possible. The great commentator Matthew Henry says this. He says, the proof of our spiritual cure is our rising and walking. Has Christ healed our spiritual disease? Well, let us go wherever he sends us. Let us take up whatever he is pleased to lay upon us and let us walk before him. You are always loved. There is always hope. So get up and walk. Get up and walk. I don't know if you've spotted the pattern here. I love this. I love seeing these little patterns that emerge you know, and again, if you've been tracking with us for a while, you'll remember we looked at this when we, when we talked about giving and generosity a few weeks back. But it just seems this same pattern is emerging. And, uh, and we shouldn't be surprised about that because this is, this is God we're studying. This is God we're looking at here. You know, our God who is the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. And we see this pattern of compassion and command and, uh, and cure. Uh, and it reminded me of what we looked at when we talked about love, give live you know we have a god who is motivated by love the source of everything that is god god that is love it all begins with love and then out of that love comes action you know love that doesn't just stay aloof and far off you know love that's not intangible and somewhere in the distance but love that comes close love that leads to action decisive divine action and that action brings life this is the divine pattern Jesus emphasizes it again in verses 20-21 when he talks to the religious leaders that come and challenge him verse 20 he says for the father loves the son the father loves the son and the father shows he, he reveals he he commands, he activates the Son. And the Son gives life. You know, this is the nature of our God. And why is this important? Well, it's important because it means we can trust. We can trust this God. This God who is motivated by love. The God who is love, the God who loves us 
and the God whose love leads to action on our behalf so that we might know love. The God who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believed in him might not perish but have eternal life.